Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing beside the Wedlake Street footbridge in Paddington, W9, three roads northwest of the home of Gladys Hanrahan, one road west of the long rest of Minnie Barry, and four roads north of the brutal torture in a Hyde Park flat by a gang of trained dancers. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Stretching over the Grand Union Canal, the Wedlake Street footbridge is a simple steel structure which lets pedestrians cross to the busy Harrow Road. Being part of the city's canal system, some boaters refer to this stretch as bandit country. As it's not uncommon to have your boat broken into, to be roughed up by teenage hoods, chatted up by toothless crack addicts, or to crash your boat into a submerged stolen moped, whilst drunks fling dog shit at your stern, and bored kids shoot at your bow with air rifles. Oh yes, this is a lovely place. But then again, it's not as bad as Slough. Hundreds of boats pass this stretch of the canal every week, chugging through the murky brown churn. With the bend tight and the water shallow, it's a spot notorious for causing your propeller to get fouled by rubbish in the water, whether by old ropes, bin bags, dirty rags, or sometimes a dead body. On Wednesday the 22nd of July 1942, 50 feet west of the Wedlake Street footbridge, the body of a woman was pulled from the water. We know her only as Lena Cunningham. How she got there, why she died, and who she was running from remains a mystery. But her death wasn't the real tragedy. It was her life. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this 
is Murder Mile. Episode 180 Lena Alone and Unloved These are the opening words of the report into Lena's death. The deceased was a loathsome type who had been sleeping on the canal bank for some time and earned a few shillings by prostitution. In the eyes of an uncaring society, Lena was a nothing, a nobody. Nobody cared for her while she was living and even less would mourn her when she was dead. Originally built in the 1800s, the Grand Union Canal stretched from Birmingham to London and was once a vital inland transport link for Britain's heavy industry. By the 1940s, with bigger roads and faster rail proving more efficient, the waterways were in the death throes. Being roughly seven miles from the River Thames, under the Wedlake Street footbridge, an average of 10 steel boats, six feet wide by 70 feet long and latent with up to 200 tons of cargo, would pass this stretch of the canal every day. At a sedate three miles an hour, they were slow but powerful. Being a forgotten part of a fast-paced city, the water was far from clean. Having filled with one and a half centuries worth of silt, becoming a dumping ground for builders' rubble, and with a fine slick of oil and sewage on the surface, the boat's propellers were churned through a brown murky stew. That day, being busier than usual, by 11.30 a.m., six boats had navigated this section. Burdened by a tight bend, trained boatmen often drop their speed, as although the canal looks deep, even if the boat was dead centre, the bottom of the canal was only two to three feet down, giving the boat's hull a clearance of just a few inches. It was said that Lena Cunningham was born in Ireland in 1899. And although these details are vague, not all of them might be true. Lena was a woman with no history. According to Edgar Dench, the last man she lived with, she said she came from Ireland, but I could never find out what she had been doing before I met her. She had no family photos, no people she called friends, and no stories of her struggle or tales of her past. It was estimated she was 42, but given the stresses of her life, she may have looked older. Being just five foot one inches tall and weighing eight stone, her body was both scrawny and bloated. Having spent her life half-starved, 
gorging on scraps, and binge drinking booze to fight off her demons. With her fresh face all weather-beaten, the only colour to her pale skin was the flushing of her cheeks, an unkempt mop of black hair, and encircling the blue innocence of her eternally reddening eyes lay two rings of purple bruises, having been beaten by yet another drunk who saw her only as a whole. With a scarred left cheek, an old broken nose, untreated gonorrhea, and a yellow set of dentures held in place by a last black molar. This was a woman who'd had a hard life for a long time. Lena was a mystery. Unmarried, childless, and alone. And yet her name could have been one of six aliases she had used for more than two decades. What little we know of her life comes from her criminal record. But what it does show is a woman who was always running, always hiding, and trusted no one. Most likely, this was her real name as the first evidence we have that she even existed was on the 13th of January 1921 when possibly aged 22 she was bound over at the Marlborough Street Police Court in Soho for theft and four other offences including prostitution under the name of Lena Cunningham. Across her 21 years of known criminal convictions she deliberately used aliases, which were as vague and forgettable as any other, such as Lena King, Lucy King, Maggie King, Mary Smith, and Iris Smith. But what's odd is that at the start of the Second World War, when every British citizen was required to identify themselves under the National Registration Act, Lena Cunningham had used the alias of Alice King. Based on her crimes, of more than 80 convictions for prostitution, drunkenness, theft and living rough, Lena was a woman living day to day, who was hiding from her past and unable to face her present. She travelled from city to city, borough to borough, moving on when her face became too well known to the police and she never stopped in one place for too long. She was a drifter with no roots. Whether in West London, Aldershot, Chichester or Liverpool. And yet, never once did she return to Ireland. Like a stuck record, Lena's life was an endless cesspool of misery. On the 22nd of June 1931, in Aldershot, she served two months for sleeping in an abandoned shed, selling her body for just 18 pence per punter. Each night, she would need two men to violate her to afford her food and lodging. 
but being a helpless alcoholic, who squandered her pittance on Red Lizzie, a fortified wine. Most nights she slept wherever she could, like a doorway, a toilet, an alley, or a hedge. As a lost soul with no friends nor enemies, although she was described as a public nuisance, she wasn't violent or rude. As being a wanderer with nowhere to go, she was as memorable as she was forgotten. On the 3rd of July, 1936, at Brentford, Lena was sentenced to seven days for being drunk and incapable. With significant injuries to her face and body, a broken nose, a fractured eye socket, several cracked ribs, and bruises to her throat, for neither the first time nor the last, Lena was attacked by a customer. It was a little over 11:30 a.m. on Wednesday, the 22nd of July, 1942, when Harry Stevens, a labourer working at Globe Vernick, spotted something odd in the water. I was coming down the iron rung ladder at the back of the works when I saw something floating. The sky was clear, and the canal was muddy brown. And although it was not uncommon to see black bits of crap bobbing below the oily surface, this was white. Having telephoned Harrow Road Police Station, within minutes, PCs Hithersay and Glen had arrived. Ten yards west of the bridge, seeing the unmistakable form of a woman floating face down. With the aid of two grappling irons, they brought her to the bank, and laid her cold, lifeless body on the towpath. Police surgeon Dr. Twaddle attended the scene, and declared her life as extinct. With her flesh slightly bloated, making her eyes thin. Like mere slits, it was clear that she'd been in the water for at least a week. For the police, her identity would be a mystery, as she had no handbag, no purse, no papers, no ticket stubs, no tattoos, no photos, and no birthmarks. How she had ended up there was impossible for the detectives to tell. As with multiple injuries, each one could have occurred moments before or after she had entered the water, or either side of her death. As for her clothing, at some point before her life was taken, she'd been fully dressed. On her feet, all that remained was one black shoe. On both legs was a pair of black stockings held up with lace garters. 
every inch of her skin from her knees to her chest was naked, except for a single ripped sleeve of a brown coat on her right arm. The torn fabric of a blue floral dress, which was rolled up and wrapped tightly around her neck like a brightly coloured noose. And yet oddly, she was wearing no knickers and no bra. Briefly examined on the bank, she had several unexplained injuries which needed a pathologist's eye. Along her legs, her back, her buttocks and her breasts were a series of thick deep bruises and with several ribs broken and her left forearm fractured. It looked as if she'd been crushed under a heavy object. With no canal water in her lungs, it was clear that she hadn't drowned. But she had died of asphyxiation and shock. And although a strange series of identical semicircular lacerations had sliced up her body from her buttocks to her scalp. Initially, the police couldn't determine what weapon could have done this damage. But what was most baffling were the items which were missing. She had no purse, no handbag, no house keys and no jewellery. She didn't have a savings book and she had no banknotes. And yet, hidden in her left garter was a single shilling. And in the ankle of her right stocking, one shilling and sixpence. Patrolling the towpath from Paddington Basin to Wormwood Scrubs, the police found several ripped fragments of the victim's dress in the water. And among a tall patch of grass, by the Scrubs Lane Bridge. A brown felt hat which matched her coat and two pieces of yellow soap wrapped in brown paper. Who she was, where she'd come from and how she'd ended up here was all a mystery. But what concerned them most was this. Having been dead for a week, why had no one reported her missing? In July 1936, following the assault in Brentford, which left her broken and bedridden, unable to earn a shilling for a night's sleep, Lena was kicked out of her lodging house at 13 Duncan Terrace in Islington. Hobbling and swollen, Lena drifted to a new part of the city where she was known by no one. The East London town of Wanstead. Being rough, gloomy and smog-thick with industry, it was the perfect place where a nobody could stay unknown. And yet it was here that she would find someone. Almost three decades her senior, Edgar Dench was a 69-year-old scrap metal dealer. With varicose veins and festering ulcers on his legs, owing to a lifetime of hard toil, 
He struggled to walk unaided. But with no savings to allow him to retire. Just like Lena, he lived every day with each penny as precious as the last. Living alone in a small wooden hut in the bowels of the scrapyard, Edgar was a lonely man with no one to love, whose only pleasure in his shitty little life was a pint in the Green Man pub in Leytonstone. Seeing a woman who was bedraggled, having slept in a hedge at Epping Forest, Edgar got chatting to Lena. He bought her a drink of Red Lizzie, and hearing a plight, they came to a mutual agreement. In return for cooking, cleaning, and sorting the rags, for a modest wage of one pound a week, she would get food, warmth, friendship, and a bed in his little wooden hut at 72 Eastern Avenue. As an unassuming little man, Edgar provided a hint of stability in her life, and there she stayed for six years. Lena had stopped running and hiding, but her demons were never far behind. By the 1940s, Edgar was the closest thing that Lena had as a friend or a family. And yet he only knew her as Alice King. When he asked about her upbringing, the tears would flow, so his questions stopped. Edgar was a good man, who treated her well, and he genuinely loved her. Later saying, had it not been for her drinking, I would have married her. From the darkness, he had given her life a hint of hope and happiness. But after so long living in the wilderness, something in her past would make her run. At first, Edgar feared for her safety. But after a few days, and sometimes a few weeks, she would always stumble back. Her clothes ragged, her face bruised, and having been arrested for drunkenness, he would pay off her fines. With her bed and belongings in the scrapyard, keen to give her a home, but also her own space. He never reported her missing, as he always knew that she would return. Until one day, she didn't. With three fines over two weeks and a brief stint at Holloway Prison for drunkenness, on Friday the 12th of June 1942, at 4pm, she was arrested on Cambridge Park Road for being intoxicated and incapable. Fed up with Lena, as he had done many times before, Edgar asked her to leave. 
she packed a small leather case with a few essentials, like two pieces of hard yellow soap wrapped in brown paper. From a rag pile, she selected an old but presentable outfit, a blue floral dress, a brown overcoat, and a matching felt hat. And in her black leather handbag, she placed her unemployment papers, her national registration card, and to pay the fines that she owed, 30 shillings, which Edgar had given her. On the morning of Saturday the 13th of June 1942, she left the scrapyard, having been summoned to attend Stratford Petty Sessions. Only she didn't arrive at court. She never paid the fines. She squandered the 30 shillings on Red Lizzie. And in a different part of town, Lena went back to selling her body for sex. An autopsy was conducted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury. With a series of five-inch wounds from her legs to her head, as well as breaks, fractures and crush injuries, he concluded it was possible she had been knocked down by a car and killed, and that her body had been thrown into the canal, possibly from a bridge. Police scoured every garage and spoke to each mechanic seeking a damaged car, but they found none. They interviewed the landlords of every local lodging house, but no one knew of her. And as a woman who wanted to remain anonymous, she would be as memorable as she was forgotten. By chance, at the Scrubs Lane Bridge, just over one mile west of where her body was found. Officers identified a deep impression in the tall grass where someone had slept. Hidden by a brick wall, they spotted Lena's brown felt hat and brown overcoat, as later identified by Edgar, and two pieces of hard yellow soap wrapped in brown paper. With her identification and bags missing, Either she'd been mugged, she had lost them, or someone had stolen them in the week between her death and her discovery. Knowing that this was where she had spent her final night alive, the police would piece together the last known movements of Lena Cunningham. First seen one week before her death, Frederick Edmonds, a park keeper at Wormwood Scrubs, who knew the prostitutes who plied their trade in the area, noticed a newcomer with dark hair, blue eyes, and a brown outfit, who went by the name of Alice King and hung out at the Pavilion Pub on Wood Lane. On Wednesday the 15th of July 1942, a month after she'd left Edgar, she was seen three times in the pub. First at 5pm when it opened for evening orders, 
and at 10.30 p.m. after last orders had been called. Sporting two black eyes, Lena, along with many local prostitutes, picked up men on Wormwood Scrubs Common as being wartime. The 172nd AAZ battery of the Royal Artillery was stationed there. Just shy of 9pm, at the back of the prison, Lena was seen talking to two soldiers through the barbed wire fence. Identified as Gunners Paget and Coulson, they would later state, she said she hadn't had a break all day. As the passing trade was sparse, and needing a shilling for a night's lodging, she asked if we'd like to come with her for 18 pence. Only they said they didn't take her up on her offer for sex. Having seen her for the last month, as always, she was drunk, her clothes were dirty, her bruises were fresh, and with her shoes described as shoddy, she walked awkwardly as one shoe had a bad heel. During the night, she was seen with a grey-haired man at the rear of the prison, which may explain why she had coins in her stockings. As the police in Wanstead said, that was where she hid her earnings. A few minutes past 10.30pm, Lena was seen by Frederick Edmonds, talking to a man as she hobbled on a broken shoe, up Wood Lane and towards the canal. It was dark, so he was unable to describe him. At some point during that night, Lena Cunningham would die. And although Dr. Spilsbury had stated his theory, that she had been hit by a car and dumped in the canal. Based on the police's following investigation, a second autopsy would cause him to revise his conclusion. The deep impression in the grass by Scrubs Lane Bridge suggested a theory. Having taken a man, or several, back to the canal for sex. She'd been paid and had stashed her coins in her stockings. But being too late and too drunk to seek out a night's lodging, she had bedded herself down in the tall grass. Often drinking till she passed out, the autopsy would confirm that seconds before she had died, she had vomited. Staggering to the canal and choking as her last undigested meal had blocked her airways. Stumbling on a broken heel, she had slipped, fell 
and hit her forehead on the canal stone edge. Immersed in water, unconscious and unable to breathe, it was the shock and lack of air that had killed her. Speaking to the chief patrol officer of the Grand Union Canal, who had recovered hundreds of bodies in his 24-year career, he would state, she would have sunk and rolled into the center of the canal, which on some stretches is heavily silted, murky brown, strewn with rubbish, and just a few feet deep. Being submerged for several days, the water would have carried her east towards Paddington. With her injuries consistent, the police identified all of the boats which had traversed this stretch from the 15th to the 22nd of July. Job Neal, captain of a working boat called the Tiber, would recall his propeller being fouled half a mile west of the Ladbroke Grove Bridge and just a few days before her body was found. Examining his hull, as he always did when his engine stalled, around his propeller, he had to cut away several thick rolled shreds of a blue floral fabric having been ripped from Lena's dress. With his boat sitting two and a half feet below the waterline, it's likely, with only a few inches of clearance, that Lena was hit and rolled underneath his and certainly several other boats as the 20 to 200 ton bulk rolled over and their three foot wide propeller blades cut thick slices of the length of her body. Lena's details were posted in the newspaper. Coming forward, Edgar would identify her body, and she was later formally identified as Lena Cunningham, owing to the fingerprints and her criminal record. On the 8th of August 1942, at Hammersmith Coroner's Court, the inquest into Lena's death concluded. The coroner would state, There is no evidence that the deceased met her death as a result of foul play. And as there was insufficient fact to suggest a suicide or an accident, he recorded an open verdict. With it mentioned in the press that she had money on her person and no known next of kin, several men claimed to be her husband and the rightful heir to her money but found to be liars. The two shillings and sixpence found in her stockings went to pay for her burial in an unmarked communal grave in Paddington. In life, she was invisible. And in death, she wasn't even seen as human. In the police report, which described her as a loathsome type, it would state... The idea that such a wretched creature was raped is out of the question. 
owing to her known Marvel character and the fact that all she would charge was eight pence. With many of her clients, not much of a better class than herself. Lena may not have had much, but she was worth more. As a woman fleeing the horrors of her past, she deserved a better life and at least a hint of happiness. But unable to trust others, even those who gave her a home, Lena would die as she lived. Alone and unloved. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Frickin' Nora, man. What's going on with this bloody heat? Oh, we're not even in a heat wave. Not even in the heat wave anymore. And it is today, it's horrible. I think it's only like 23 degrees. It's, it's meant to be all right and it's cloudy, but it's, it's muggy as shit. Oh, this mugginess can f- FRO. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your little hat off. Here we go. I'm taking your hat off. There you go. Uh, I'm just gonna open the window a bit. Oh, lordy, lordy. Oh. Oh, it's just too, it's it's muggy, 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 effing muggy, muggy, Robert my muggy. Oh man, now I've got flies buzzing around. I had to have the windows shut while we were doing this. It's just too hot. I literally I pulled out a tissue partway through, and I had to I had to keep mopping my brow because I was just sweating all the way through that. Oh, time for a nice diet coke. Oh, not gonna make a cup of tea too hot for a bloody cup of tea oh that was bakey 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 hot that's too i sweated all the way through my pajamas yes it's almost four in the afternoon and i'm still in pajamas why because it's what i do it's my thing yeah uh so hey everyone welcome to extra mile here we are we're here we're back episode 180 180 
Cool, dear, who'd have thought we got that far? Ugh, 108, I think there's a fi- 180 official episodes. I think it's, I think it's like 260 online. If you go on to Patreon, I think there's another 80 episodes of uh, Walk With Me on there. Cool. If you wanted to, there's... What would that be? That would be like 400 hours of entertainment. Cool, dear, who would want that? Jeez, what a nightmare. 400 hours of me, what a nightmare. Horrible. Anyway, as mentioned, this is Extra Mile. Unscripted, unedited, blah, 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 blah. If you're new to this, this is... Ooh, burpee. This is what it is. Uh, me burping, me doing a quiz question, me giving you some details about the case. We probably didn't make it into the episode. We do uh, quiz questions. I can't remember if I said that. Uh, I th- we do thank yous to Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you this week, Laura Bell. Thank you so much. Patron supporter of the week. F- my favourite patron supporter of the week. There we go. We'll, we'll make, my, make a new thing this week. Favourite patron supporter of the week. Of course, if there's three, there'll be three patron supporters of the week. There we go. Oh still hot i need to open up some more doors uh what's going on in the world um don't know oh when this goes out the london show will have happened the how to plan the perfect murder and then totally balls it up to that this goes out uh thursday the 11th of august this episode if you're listening to it when it goes out if not it'll you'll get it when when you listen to it (laughs) uh so yeah we would have done the show by then so uh, if you listen to that now and you're like oh i'm in london that day and i could do with watching the show there might be some tickets available you don't know uh limited limited tickets it's uh only uh, like a hundred seater so yeah uh and most most have already gone but you never know um we've also got a, a date from manchester we're going to be doing that in october so i will announce soon our manchester date and venue all very exciting uh what else is going on in the world um i decided to try this week uh because i'm still trying to work out tiktok i don't understand tiktok it's it's really really, i'm finding it really baffling so what i did was i thought right i'm going to take some really new interesting stories that i've never told some little ones and i'm going to really nicely edit them and shoot them and make them look really good and really polished and you know very nice i'm going to put those out uh and at the same time, I, I was walking down the street and I saw something and I thought, oh, I should really do that. So I, I did a, I recorded something. It was just done on the, my phone. It, was, it wasn't was particularly well done. I didn't think it was particularly good. The two things that I laboured over and put out and were really, I thought were really nice and funny and, you know, a nice balance to them and good, really nicely done. People barely, barely acknowledged the shit the crappy bit that i was just kind of like nah this will do i'll put this out did about five to ten times better than them you just well, i don't get it why do people why do people like quality why do they like shit just i don't get it i don't get it, it just it's weird because it makes it makes you not not want to put in any effort when you see someone pff, posting something that's just utter crap or, or like, as I've noticed, I noticed something the other day. Someone had got really high figures on it and the, a train's coming into a station and someone went, oh my God, I just caught that. Oh my God, I just caught that on my phone in it. You don't get me. I just caught that on my phone in it. Do you see that? Nothing happened. It's like, and so many people were watching it and going, what's happening? And everyone's just going, nothing, nothing's happening. It's just some prick trying to get attention who's literally filming a train going in. Going, oh my God, you see that? You see that? I got it on my phone. Mia's going to put it on TikTok, in it? Oh... And you just think, why are people looking at that? And yet, quality stuff, they won't. Oh, just baffling. Anyway, I'm still trying to work out TikTok. 
getting there slowly i think i'm just going to keep putting out better quality stuff if people want to look at shit they can but the people who like quality they will hunt it out uh what else is going on uh i think that's it i think that's all i need to say about about shite that's going on in the world i'm going to head into my favorite little coffee shop in the morning and, and start editing this i've got into a nice habit now of editing in coffee shops because the rough edit at the start when i'm just because obviously when you hear the the narration at the start you, you may think oh he does that in one take it's not in one take it takes bloody ages and i cock it up and especially in the heat sweat's pouring down and i'm tripping over words and i'm making mistakes and sometimes when i'm doing the narration i realize that it, it reads well in your head but it's not it doesn't read well when you when you try to pronounce it so then i have to rewrite it so it can take a couple of hours uh so half an hour take can take a long time to kind of get the narration and then i have to go into a coffee shop in the morning and then edit it so it sounds like it flows naturally but it but it really doesn't but i make it sound natural so that's what i do in the morning because i'll do the rough edit on the narration which takes about a day to get that uh just right that's more than most people spend on their whole episode in fact there's some people don't even spend an hour on their episode me i spend a whole day just trying to get the narration to flow nicely uh and then when i do the clean edit so that's getting all the the sounds and the noise in there i need a really quiet place except it's noisy here listen to that that's a weir behind me that's a, a weir i'm right next to so uh yeah anyway let's let's do some quiz questions uh don't forget as always i'll probably ball some of these up am i still recording i am still recording so 10 questions i might balls them up we'll do the answers at the end right let's dive in quick swig of of uh chemicals oh yummy and now it's, it's really warm now only had bought that like a little while ago um right questions question number one what was the brand of wine which lena drank question number two for boaters, um, what part of the canal is not as bad as which other place? So I mentioned this at the start. For boaters, what part of the canal is not as bad as which other place? Oh, uh, I, I just realised that, that, that. Sorry, that question doesn't even make sense for boaters the part of the canal that we were on so that bit yeah see i could do with editing that bit but i'm not gonna edit that bit for the boaters uh the part of the canal that we were focused on in that episode i said it's not as bad as which other place what is the other place i'm making reference to there we go that's the sort of the question ah <sighs> question number three how much did lena sell sex for so that's a simple question uh question four except for london which one of the other cities or towns do we know that she lived in? So it's three other places, which are, except London, which of the other cities or towns do we know that she lived in? Uh, question number five, which prison do we know that she served in? Question number six, which police station did the officers who pulled her body out of the water come from? Uh, question number seven uh, what tools did the officers use to fish her out of the water this eight one number eight is a difficult one um what was the name of the officers who pulled her out of the water 
Question nine: What is the name of the pub where Lena let burped? Where Lena met Edgar? So, what is the name of the pub where Lena met Edgar? Another burp there. Question number ten: Another hard one. What is the address of the scrapyard in Wanstead? Again, as mentioned, some of these I might accidentally delete. Well, not accidentally delete. Sometimes I delete stuff out because it's just it's it slows uh, the episode down, or it doesn't flow right, or do you know, there's various reasons why I might, or it could be repetition, so sometimes I'll delete them. But I haven't edited this yet, obviously. Uh, so let's dive into Lena's criminal convictions. Um, it was about five pages long, but one page was missing, uh, and that seemed to be the pages in and around the time when she was with Edgar. Uh, we don't know why it was missing, but it was definitely missing. A page was definitely gone. Um so we know that she was uh, called Lena Cunningham. We think uh, it's odd that she registered under the National Registration Act under the name of Alice King, which was not her name. But uh, she did go under Lena King, Lucy King, Maggie King, Mary Smith, Smith, Iris Smith. I had difficulty saying that during the episode. Uh, we think we only think her name is Lena Lena Cunningham because that was her first offence, and that quite often that's the name you use. When you're arrested for your first offence, quite often people will use their real, their real name and then they'll start using aliases. Uh, so 13th of January 1921, she was bound over for three years at Mulber Street Police Court. So she was in Soho at that point um, for larceny, which is theft, plus four convictions for minor offences, including prostitution. And given the fact that Soho is a place known for prostitution, it makes sense. Uh, 4th of March 1926, uh, same place. Uh, uh, charged with soliciting under the name of Alice King. 3rd of May 1926, just a bit later, one month hard labour, uh, West London Police Court for being a riotous and indecent prostitute under the name of Lucy King. 13th of July 1926, uh, she served two times one month consecutively at West London Police Court, again for being a drunk and riotous and malicious malicious damage. The problem with a lot of these cases is, uh, say, a riotous and indecent prostitute, it doesn't give you any details, and obviously this is down to the officer in question to put down uh, what they say it is. But it can, be, it can be quite flexible, as we've seen before, especially with the term of prostitute. Um if a policeman saw you as a lone woman in this era uh, in the same place three times, he could accuse you of being a prostitute. And you can't recourse from that. You can't say, I'm not a prostitute. So it, it kind of makes it really difficult. Malicious damage as well. What is malicious damage? We don't have any details about that. She could have been drunk. She could have fallen. She could have broken something. So, you know, but they could say malicious damage. So. It's really hard to nail this down. But everyone who seemed to know her said she wasn't violent. She wasn't nasty. She was a drunk. She was a little bit fun. But you know what? She could she could be a little bit uh, funny sometimes. Uh, uh, 23rd of August 1926, she served seven months in prison for being, again, a riotous prostitute and an assault on a policeman. Again, we don't know what the assault is. When you look at it on paper, it looks like she probably had a fisty fight with a policeman. But... She could have pushed him, she could have shoved him, she could have spat at him, she could have fallen into him. It, it's such a vague term. Uh, again, under the title of Alice King. Uh, 29th of January 1927, she uh, a £1 fine and 11 days in, in uh, prison for being, again, a riotous prostitute. 
after that, another one for prostitution. Again, another one, drunken, riotous and malicious damage. This time under Alina Cunningham. Um, she's moving around a lot at this point. Uh, uh, 24th of October 1927 26 days in prison for soliciting 29th of October 1928 Westminster for drunk and disorderly again and this, an assault uh, under the name of Alice Smith I see a different a different name there uh, 18th of February 1930 21 days in prison uh, for indecency we don't know what indecency means it could be that she was a prostitute or she could have been having sex with someone in public. So that could be indecency under Maggie King. 4th of March 1931. Bound over uh, for 12 months and a £2 fine at Bow Street. Drunk and disorderly under Maggie King. At this point, 1931, she moves to Liverpool. We don't know why. Maybe she, as given the fact that she's Irish and there's a big Irish community there. Maybe she had family there, but we don't know. Uh, she was bound over for 12 months with a £5 fine for being drunk and disorderly. Again, under Alice Smith. 4th of April 1931, still in Liverpool. Um, uh, she f uh, failed to turn up at uh, the court. She was kind of bound over and then she went against that. She was drunk. That was under Mary Smith. 13th of April 1931, still in Liverpool. £2 fine, one, one month offence uh, for offensive behaviour. This time under Mary Smith. Same year. Middle of June, she moves to Aldershot, uh, where she serves two months hard labour for wandering abroad, i.e. being homeless, and lodging in a shed. This time under Mary Smith. So all of hers are prostitution, drunkenness, homelessness. Uh, very little, kind of theft in order to fund what she's doing. Uh, 8th of March 1933, back at Bow Street. Uh, one month in prison, plus 62 convictions for drunk... Uh, drunkenness, indecency and prostitution under the name of Iris Smith 24th of May 1932 uh, 5 shilling fine and 5 days in prison at West London for being drunk uh, and skipping bail under Alice King it's amazing because these are all on the same sheet so every time, every time she gives an alias uh, obviously they, they know who she is because they get her fingerprints they, they double check them most of the time they know who she is anyway uh, they've got a photograph and they go uh, actually you're Lena and they put it down as Alice King or whatever alias she's doing. Uh, 29th of... Um, oh, I realised I gave away one of the answers then. There we go. That's fine. Fuck it. Yeah, I've given away one answer. You can have that one. I'll give away another one here. Uh, actually, uh, I missed out three. So that that's irrelevant anyway. 29th of July, 1933 at Chichester. There you go. That was one of them. Uh, 21 days hard labour for stealing collection boxes and its contents. Um 8th of June 1935 at Epson. See, I missed that one. Uh, one month in prison for being drunk and disorderly. 3rd of July 1936. I missed this one as well. Brentford, but mentioned in the episode. She was fined five shillings plus 15 shillings and sixpence and seven days in prison for being drunk and incapable. Uh, and this is the one where she, they say she suffered significant injuries to her face and body, resulting from a, an assault on Hounslow Heath while soliciting for prostitution. Uh, she'd been the victim of assault uh, by a cl by various clients on many occasions. And this is where there's a gap in a, in a uh, police record. Uh, might not be in the police record. It was just in the file that I had. And there's no other way to check it. Uh, so um, that was 1936. We don't hear anything from her again until 1941. That's that's where the next page comes from. So we're missing about five five years. 
Um, she doesn't appear to have done much in terms of crime during that period, but she is uh, she is she's with Edgar at that moment. So it's it's as, as you can see in the episode, it's on and off, it's on and off. She kind of she stays with him, she does well, she earns a bit of money, she has a good life, and then she gets flighty again. She gets drunk, she disappears, or he kind of boots her out, but hoping that she'll sort herself out but she never does and then she comes back um uh 29th of august 1941 she was sentenced to four days four days hard labor at east ham police court for being drunk and disorderly 23rd of april 1942 at leightonstone for being drunk and incapable she was found in bush road in leightonstone she was drunk incapable and complaining of having missed her handbag um now she did. Ha- this was the handbag that would ultimately be stolen. She did find it before she left uh, to go to Wormwood Scrubs because uh, Edgar remembers seeing her with a bag, which is why we know these details. Fourth uh, of May, nineteen forty-two, at Albany Police Station, that's north of Regent's Park. She was drunk and incapable. Ninth of May, nineteen forty-two, at Marlborough Police, Mar- Marlborough Street Police Court, again drunk and incapable. Uh, so. It seems to be a, a kind of a, a, a tragedy that everything is kind of a constant spiral with her. Nothing ever changes. It just goes back and back. Oh, what do we got? Let's um, let's have a look at some of the witnesses. So obviously Edgar Dench. He's they've got him down as a marine store dealer, but he was actually a scrap dealer. Uh, um, what else can we say? He only knew her as. Uh, Alice King, the only reason we know about her age, which was estimated, is that what he said he thought her age was, but we can't verify that. He identified her at Paddington Mortuary on the 24th of July, which was two days later. He recognised her by her face, her sharp nose, and the clothes that she was wearing uh, when she was living with him just seven days before she was found. Uh, so she was still wearing... The, the clothes she was found in were the clothes that she left in, so she hadn't got a, a spare change of clothes. Um, we've already heard about Harry Stevens, who was worked at Globe Vernick. The, the building is still there. That Globe Vernick, they were a uh, furniture manufacturers who kind of made um, bookcases and things like that. And th- apparently, it's it's a, a bit of arts and crafts that's very fashionable today. And the building is still there today. It's I think it's I think it's called Canalot Studios now. It's a very arty place. Ah, uh, what else have we got? Uh, originally the divisional surgeon Dr Tweddle, good name he arrived on the scene, certified life as extinct, he said that initially that he thought that, when you look at his details he says initially that she'd been in the water for two days, then he says three or four days and then he says uh, roughly around a week, it turned out it was a week, Uh, but it's kind of hard to pin it down right at the start Uh, Frederick Edmonds, the park keeper uh, had uh, worked at Wormwood Scrubs Coburn for about 15 years. He would say, During my service, I have often seen women who service men in Wormwood Scrubs. I last saw this woman on the 15th of July 1942, as he was on leave on the 16th to the 23rd. She was talking to men, soldiers, and civili- civilians and taking them back to Scrubs Bridge, which was where her kind of her the grass where she was sleeping was. Uh, I last saw her about 10 20 pm. She seemed sober. Uh, it, it, they said that it would only take about three glasses of wine for her to be a bit bit shit-faced. Uh, and he he uh, noticed that she'd, he'd seen her a couple of days before. 
barmaid uh, Mona Orstwick of the Pavilion Pub, which is still there today, she saw her on the 15th and said, I remember she had two thick black eyes. Uh, she was never sober, but she was never quarrelsome. Uh, Lena was mostly seen in the public bar from 5pm when it opened until 10.30pm when it closed, and she'd been there since the middle of June. Uh, what else? We got uh, the PCs when they turned up, whose names I won't mention, because there we go, that's one of the quiz questions, Melda and Michael. Uh, they brought the body to the bank, and uh, immediately they, they knew that there was no reason to do artificial respiration, because she was clearly dead. Um, uh, Detective Inspector Stinton of X Division, which is Paddington, um, he said the body had the appearance of being naked, except that on the right arm was a portion of a lady's brown overcoat, a heavy crepe dress with the sleeves missing, a portion of green floral dress. Uh, she seemed to be wearing multiple dresses, uh, torn, um, and the pale green dress had brown spots on it. Later, when they looked at it, the browns, I didn't put this in the episode, the brown spots uh, was oil from the engine. Uh, or, or or the propeller. Um, the clothing was rolled up around her neck. Uh, also, she was wearing still silk stockings, two black garters, and one black one right black shoe. Her clothes were extensively torn, consistent with being torn by the propeller of barges. Uh, what else have we got? Um, uh, at the autopsy, two fingernails were, were removed and underneath they saw brown stainage, which initially they thought was some kind of industrial dye, but they took it to Hendon Laboratory and it was certified that it was more kind of like oil, uh, for, again from the barges. Um, so even though when you look at... Uh, I think it just seems to be one officer who's who's writing this, and he seems to be the one who doesn't seem to ha have a kind of a caring bone in his body. He's the one who makes reference to her being worthless and a, a, a wretched creature and things like that, uh, which is entirely disrespectful. But when you look at the, the, the hard work they put into it, like a body found in the water, and they covered three to four miles of the bank, scouring it for de for any details, and that's where they found like a hat and things like that. And they were able to piece it together... And as seen here, you know, they're uh, um, finding stuff under her fingernails and trying to get it analysed so they can work out what it is, so where she might have come from. So they put in a lot of effort to find out exactly who she is and what she was about. Um, Job Neal, who was the tugboat captain of the boat, uh, which one of the boats that they knew had run her over. Uh, he lived nearby at Bronsbury Villas. Uh, he'd been on the canal since he was 14. Um, for the last three years, he'd been working on a tugboat called Tyburn traveling the Grand Union Canal he makes six journeys a day um, he said that it was when he was passing the Kensal Green section uh, the canal varies at points sometimes sometimes it can be four or five feet deep but quite often it can be as little as two feet and the um, the difference between the water line and the bottom of his boat is about two and a half feet so quite often I've, I've had it myself sometimes you be driving along and you can hear you can hear that You'll be in the middle of the canal, you can hear the bottom scraping against it. Or if some prick has thrown a, a trolley in the middle of the water, uh, then you can get stuck on that, which can be a real pain in the ass. Uh, but of course it's funny when people throw shite in the canal. Um, he said, any obstructions my boat would normally run over and would probably be caught up in the propeller. We get obstructions every day. On Tuesday the 21st of July or a day after, I had an obstruction which reduced the speed of the engine. I cleared it and found a piece of dark blue rag. This was part of the blue crepe dress that the police found. I put it on the side of the canal. 
it would likely um, be that uh, clothing of the body would have got caught up in the propeller. Um, and when they looked at kind of the injuries that occurred to her body, it was consistent with the propellers kind of spinning around and then cutting up her body as she rolled underneath uh, the boat itself. Uh, he said that um, when he got out, he did, at that point, he didn't see a body in the water. Obviously, being a boater, he's got a job to do. He's on his way into Paddington. Uh, he's at that point looking to continue his journey he's, you're not looking around for bodies in the water why would you um what else uh his boat was loaded with 70 tons of coal at that point um he used a steel hook to remove it which means he, he wasn't under the water he was using kind of barge hook to get it out what you do is you kind of wrap it around the thing and then you turn it like uh like you would with uh spaghetti and that kind of un un unspools it uh, he said this is a very common thing and obviously propellers get fouled up with discarded rubbish all the time. I concur, it certainly does. Um, initially, he did see the body. So before, I didn't put this in the episode because it throws everything off. But before the body was initially found by Harry Stevens, he said uh, Wednesday the 22nd of July, so the same day, 8.15pm, AM, sorry, uh, he was going past the gas works, uh, which is just a little bit w more west. I saw the body of a woman in the water, the tug passed it, but I did not touch it. When I got to Paddington, I saw the police patrol boat leaving Paddington and heading for Kensal Green. Um, uh, he said it's, it's entirely possible that the Tyburn and his boat may have struck the woman on one of the journeys. Um, he didn't report it to the police as seeing them depart. He thought that's where they were going, but they weren't. Uh, and they didn't see it either. Uh, there is a kind of a police patrol boat that goes up and down the, the canal quite often. Uh, he said his uh, propeller was three feet wide by six inches in diameter. His boat sits two and a half feet to three feet below the waterline, depending on how much coal he's got on board. And uh, the propeller revolves at an average of 410 revs per minute. Uh, also on the water that day was the fireboat, uh, but that didn't see the body either. Uh, obviously, the one thing that I think is really interesting in this case is, is the autopsies of Sir Bernard Spilsbury. So the first one we have is him saying, I think she might have been hit by a car and her body dumped in the canal, which is very exciting. Um, but... Afterwards, after the police have done the investigation, they found out where she was staying and what she did that night and what was going on. And because they couldn't find any cars that had kind of bloodstains or consistent damage and they hadn't found anyone who'd taken a car into a garage to get it fixed. You know, they did a thorough search and they checked all the lodging houses and things like that because they hadn't found anything to do with that. He did a second autopsy and then all of a sudden he goes, oh, no, I found vomit in her throat. And therefore she must have keeled over and, and drowned in the well, not drowned because. Uh, she'd got vomit in her throat so she couldn't breathe she collapsed she hit her head and then she died of asphyxiation and shock so it's amazing how quickly he changed his theory he's quite an arrogant man and you can kind of see many times that he kind of goes i believe this i'm going to go with this that person's guilty there we go but at this point and this is four months after the blackout ripper murders the the four that we know about not the earlier ones um he he's not too far away from uh his 
retirement he's this is not i think i think this might be after the point that his son died he's starting to lose his marbles by this point he's, he's going a little bit off the radar um this is kind of weird isn't it how how can you go from saying i think all of her injuries happened before before she died and before she entered the water and then with a the second autopsy he's saying no she uh she didn't drown she fell in the water she died of shock and then all of the injuries happened post-mortem as a pathologist you would be able to know the difference between whether injuries are anti-mortem or post-mortem and he seems to be wavering on this when he seems to be all over the shop which doesn't help the investigation which is why it's an it's still an open verdict there's there's nothing in there at all um he said, I, I, this is the second autopsy. I agree with that some of the injuries could have been caused that way. The injuries to the arms might have been caused by crushing between the boat passing over her and the bed of the canal. I think all of the worst injuries could have been caused in two ways. Uh, in the injuries uh, must have happened as she entered the water and before she drowned. See, again, he's wavering again. It could have happened that she fell in the water it can be said that death occurred between the 15th and the 20th of July. I mean, that's, that's really vague by that point. So he's, so time of death is either three days or a week. Uh, it would be consistent to say that she lost her balance, fell in the water and was struck by passing tugboats. In my opinion, none of these injuries were homicidal in any ordinary sense. Again, keeping it vague. Coroner said, I shall simply record the fact and leave the verdict open. Alice King came to her death between the 15th and 20th of July on the Grand Union Canal. Um, death was due to shock from multiple injuries, uh, the cause of which uh, has not been fully disclosed by the evidence, which means an open verdict. So there you go. There you go. Uh, to answer the question, you're probably uh, thinking, why? Oh, hang on. Uh, if she wasn't attacked, um, why was she not wearing knickers and a bra? Well, think about it. She's a sex worker. Why would you wear knickers in a bra, given the fact that you'd probably be taking them off ten or ten, maybe ten times a day? You just wouldn't bother. You, wouldn't bother. you, don't, you don't wear knickers. You don't wear a bra. It makes life easier. Uh, so that's probably why. Um, being being poor, she probably didn't have any. Because you know, expensive things to buy. Bras, expensive things to buy. Apparently, uh, I don't know about that. But you know, it's likely likely that maybe she didn't own any, or maybe because of her job she didn't need to um but yeah no they, they did a not a bad job they uh i've got a list of all the uh all the all the boats they literally because boats have to go through all the locks and all the lock keepers kept lists of all the boats so they basically visited all the lock be lock keepers and double checked all of the boats that went through and spoke to all the all the captains and uh double checked everything so given given the fact that this is um just a body in the water kind of not a deliberate not something that out on the outside looks definitely like a murder they really did a thorough job especially given the fact that this is right in the height of world war Two. lots of deaths going on and um yeah interesting interesting anyway so uh we shall never know we shall never know what really happened to uh lena but i think it's likely um that what happened is what happened I know it's sensational to say, oh, 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 I think she was murdered. Oh, but why? Why is no evidence for that? Uh, so let's do some uh, the answers to the questions. <sighs> Question number one. What was the brand... Oh, burpees. What was the brand of wine which Lena drank? 
it was called Red Lizzie. Uh, it was a tawny wine, which is kind of like a, a, a fortified wine, like a sherry. Um, question number two. Here we go. There's that question again. For boaters, the part of the canal we were on, I described as not as bad as which other place? The, I referred to it as bandit country. And I said, uh, although it's not as bad as slough. Now, I know some people go, oh, I live in snow. I live in snow. Why, why did he say snow is a horrible place? Snow's not a horrible place. I'm going to give him one star. I would give him naught stars. Only iTunes doesn't let me. <laughs> uh, the reason why I say that is because when, when you're going down, like from Uxbridge and you go down the Grand Union and you can turn up the canal and go into Slough, everyone calls it bandit country because all the little shit bags come out and they they hold like rocks at your boat and bricks and they jump on your boat and they smash your windows and it's just it's just horrible there's no reason to go there so no one goes there it's literally everyone goes don't go to slough a it's a dead end b it's bandit country so i'm not going to go at slough i'm going to go at the little shit bags who come out and vandalize boats on the canal little bastards that they are uh, and you can't go to sleep because some the little shitbags come out on their motorbikes and they're like, and you just like fuck off, and then they vandalise your boat or they torch it. Oh, every time someone's boat gets vandalised, we always go, "Where are you?" I they're either in uh, Victoria Park or in Slough, and we always go, "Well, there you go." Um, question number three: How much did Lena sell sex for? It was. 18 pence per person not much not much money at all so that was uh although when you when you think about it she was earning a pound a week at the, at the scrapyard uh so yeah she could probably she could probably earn about a pound a night selling sex if she you know sold she had sex with six men but she spent most of her money on on uh red lizzie which is the problem, which is why she rarely was able to get into a lodging. Uh, question number four, except for London, this is that bullshit question, except for London, which uh, one of the other cities or towns do we know that she lived in? Uh, answers to the question with either Aldershot, Chichester or Liverpool. I fucked up all of those questions. Uh, uh, so you can have that as, have that as a freebie. Uh, question five, which prison do we know that she served in? I didn't balls up this one. It was Holloway Prison. Uh, question six. Which police station did the officers who pulled her body out of the water come from? Uh, it was Harrow Road Police Station. And if you like a little bit of trivia, uh, there was a uh, officer working out of Harrow Road Police Station in 1942 who lived a couple of streets away. And his name was Reg Christie. There you go. Oh, people are getting excited. They're going, oh, I wonder if Reg Christie killed her. No, nope, he didn't. I mean, I can't definitely say that, but it's it's not his M.O. Just because it's a dead body near his house doesn't mean he did it. I think it's unlikely. He liked to take them back, have sex with the bodies. Why would he kill, why would he kill someone there? It doesn't seem like his thing. Uh, question number seven. What tools did the police use to fish her out of the water? They were grappling irons. Uh, question eight, which is a hard one. Ooh, uh. uh What was the name of the police officers? It was PC's Hithersay and Glen. There you go. I'll give you two points if you got both of those. Uh, question number nine. What was the name of the pub where Lena met Edgar? 
It was the Green Man Pub in Leytonstone, which is still that still no, I think it's recently recently shut down. Uh, was there until recently, I believe. Uh, and question number ten, another hard one. I'll give it to you. It'll be worth two points. What was the address of the scrapyard in Wanstead? It was seventy-two Eastern Avenue, which is no longer there. It's been uh, long since been been demolished. So there we go. That's that. Core. What a horrible story. But that was one of those ones where I saw it and thought, that's so sad and tragic, I was hooked within minutes. Well, within the first minute, the first page. I hadn't even read the first page fully and I was hooked. So there we go. Um, hope you enjoyed that, folks. Uh, next week, a more modern story. Uh... I think that's all I'm going to say about it. Anyway, uh, there's a fly. Fuck off. Fuck off, fly. Bastard. Uh, have yourself a good week. Not you. You're not a bastard and you're not a fly. Maybe if you are a fly listening to this, then uh, I, I'm i sorry for calling you a bastard. Uh, have yourself a good week. Stay safe, everyone. Be good. Uh, stay away from the canals, especially if you're in Slough. Uh, have a good one. Be good. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.